The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Uh, I am Paul Williams. Wado is not here. This is another one of our special USPSTF uh, recommendation episodes. And I am joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, Dr. Elena Gibson. Dr. Gibson, how are you? Lovely. How are you? <laughs> I had that energy. On tonight's episode, we discussed the updated USPSTF guideline with uh, Dr. Carol Mangione. This guideline specifically is about the use of hormone therapy for the primary prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons. Um, and... We're going to tell you a little bit more about the guest, maybe tease some of the points that we learned. But before I do that, let me remind you what we do. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And now I will throw the mic. No, that's not the right way to say it. Um, <laughs> I will it. turn the mic over to, to Elena. Tell us about a little bit more about what we talked about and who we talked to. Thanks, Paul. So we have a fantastic conversation about hormone therapy for primary prevention of chronic conditions such as cardiovascular disease, fractures, um, cancer, and postmenopausal persons with our guest, Dr. Carol Mangione. Overall, the potential risk of hormone therapy to prevent chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons outweighs the benefit, and we'll get into more of those details in the episode. So a little bit about Dr. Mangione. She is the chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and the chief of the Division of Gener General Internal Medicine and Health Services Research. She holds the Barbara Levy and Gerald Levy Endowed Chair in Medicine and is a distinguished professor of medicine and public health at the University of California, Los Angeles and the Executive Vice Chair for Health Equity and Health Services Research in the UCLA Department of Medicine. Wow, she is an impressive educator and clinician. Yeah, no, it's, it's always like to start the episodes by feeling bad about myself, but <laughs> I, I, unless you Not have true. a pun. <laughs> You're Paul from Twitter. Yes, that's right. Uh, very niche fame. Uh, any puns for us for this one? Oh, no, I'm not I'm putting punny. you on the spot. No is no key answer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> No. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will start the show. Hi, Dr. Mangione. Thanks so much for, for agreeing to talk to us about the new USPSTF recommendation. We're really excited to have you here. But before we get started, like we always like to do, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better first. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just share a one-liner about yourself, um, just telling us who you are and maybe including something outside of medicine that you're interested in. So I'm Carol, and thank you, Paul, uh, for inviting me to be on Curbsiders tonight. Um, and I am a general internist, uh, a Bruin. I practice at UCLA, and I have for a number of decades. And uh, when I'm not seeing patients or doing research or working with the task force, I'm watching a lot of NBA basketball. Nice. Who's your team? Sadly, the Lakers. Oh, yeah, not not the year. I felt that that was going to be my luck with the jazz. It may not be the f decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't follow closely enough to know if I should be offering condolences or not. But, I, you know, it's living in Philadelphia. It's such a, a banana sports town. Like I can sort of tell how the teams did just based on traffic and the commute and sort of how people are driving. So I'm not sure if it's the same there or not. 
It's like the emotional feeling of the city. <laughs> yeah, yes. Is it marginally more angry than normal? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know how things went. Um, we're, we're here to talk about the newer recommendation, or I guess the update of the recommendation for, uh, or at least regarding hormone therapy for the primary prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons. So to do that, I think we'll, as we always do, start with the case. And Elena, why don't I let you talk us through our, our first patient, what we're going to do for her or to her. The first case today, Judy, she's a 52-year-old woman. She's coming to the clinic for a follow-up. She went through menopause last year and wonders if she should be started on hormonal supplements to prevent fractures, as she knows a friend who has osteoporosis and takes supplemental estrogen and progesterone. So thinking about Judy's case, why is hormone therapy for primary prevention of chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, cancer, and fractures being considered by the USPSTF? Right. So I think the important thing is when you think about taking hormones, you have to have a really holistic view of it. So hormones might help you to prevent one chronic condition, but if it's making a bunch of other chronic conditions more likely to happen, you know, you really need to take that um, net set of conditions. And in the task force's hands and going over this topic, we really felt that the potential harms for Judy would cancel out the potential benefits. So Judy's friends, doctors, right? Uh, people who take hormones are less likely to get fractures, but that needs to be balanced against all of the things that are more likely to happen. Um, so when taken in the balance, and we'll get into this, um, what you're gonna see is that for women or people who take combined estrogen and progestin, the moderate harms include increased risk of invasive breast cancer, stroke, venous thromboembolism, dementia, gallbladder disease, and urinary incontinence. And we know there are a lot of other safer approaches to prevent fractures. So when taken together, the potential harms really cancel out the benefits. So we wouldn't be telling Judy to start hormones. Yeah, I, I, I do want to talk about sort of all the various conditions that were sort of looked at and sort of how how that was parsed out. But before we even get there, can you speak to a little bit about the, the types of hormone therapy that were considered when, when updating this recommendation? Absolutely. So, you know, there's one large longitudinal study that really provides most of the evidence that we know about the benefits and the harms of taking hormones after menopause. And uh, that study is the Women's Health Initiative. And it used um, two hormones, one called Provera, which is uh, medroxyprogesterone, and the other called Premarin, which is conjugated estrogens. So most of the evidence base that we have is really about those two preparations. And so no like local hormone therapy was considered? We did not look at the evidence in terms of topical hormone therapies. So if you're thinking about vaginal estrogens or estrogen patches, the, the amount of data or information on, on the benefits and harms of those preparations is really relatively small uh, at this point. But I guess that sort of raises the, the larger point about 
who this recommendation is for, right? Because we're not talking about actually treating symptoms of menopause. Um, specifically, we're talking about prevention of chronic diseases, right? So I just want to make sure that I'm clear on terms of the recommendation that this applies to are, are patients who are postmenopausal, but you're trying to prevent certain disease states and not addressing symptoms like perimenopausal symptoms of things like the vasomotor symptoms or, uh, or, or other symptoms like that. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, our current final recommendation is really that the USPSTF recommends against the use of combined estrogen and progestin for the primary prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons. And we give that a grade D, like dog, <laughs> um, because the harms really cancel out the benefits. The second part of the recommendation is that we recommend against the use of estrogen alone for primary prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons who've had a hysterectomy. And that's a D recommendation also. Now, you know, you asked about the management of perimenopausal symptoms like hot flashes, insomnia, um, things that happen early in the menopausal phase. And hormones are highly effective for treating those. And if you look at the recommendations of other groups, such as the American College of Gynecology, what you see is that they recommend that you use the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time to manage those symptoms. So that's a whole different story than what the task force is looking at. We're really looking at the long-term consequences of being on hormones in terms of your risk for specific chronic conditions. And I think one thing, you know, the term chronic conditions is really encompasses quite a lot of different diagnoses or potential outcomes. And I wonder how how did the USPSTF decide what to focus on, or was it just a consequence of what there was evidence for? You know, a lot of it is what there is evidence for. And in the Women's Health Initiative in particular, in their longitudinal follow-up, they had specific chronic conditions that they were interested in tracking and understanding. You know, one of the, the big motivators for the Women's Health Initiative in the initial design stage and implementation was that from observational data, it looked like taking hormones actually prevented cardiovascular disease, right? But then once we did a randomized trial, what we found was that there was no beneficial effect on the risk of coronary heart disease. This really emphasizes, you know, how important it is when trying to understand the long-term benefits and harms of a therapeutic to have well-designed clinical trials and adequate numbers of people for adequate numbers of years to be able to get an unbiased answer. We, we talked a little bit about this before we got started, and I, I think our listeners, and, well, and even if they're not, I am in particular interested in sort of the, the inside baseball discussions that kind of go into recommendations like this. So I, I guess the first question I have is, you know, you, you talked sort of at the outset, this is a degrade recommendation because the harms outweigh the benefits. But when you're looking at a multitude of conditions, so it looks like the benefits might be um, sort of nebulous in terms of cardiovascular disease prevention, but then also fairly good for, um, well, maybe fairly good is overstating, but, but maybe some benefit with osteoporosis, but then the downsides are um, 
gallbladder disease, which wasn't even on my radar. I guess my 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 question is, is sort of how do you make the ultimate determination whether there is sort of net benefit or net harm when you're comparing sort of all these different disease states and potential disease prevention benefits? I guess how, how what does that discussion look like, and how do you ultimately decide? the harms outweigh the good or, or vice versa? So we, it, the task force always commissions an evidence review. And and we go to some of the very leading experts in, in putting evidence together for us. And um, not having a benefit on cardiovascular disease is not nebulous, Paul. It is clear that there's no benefit. And, and um, uh, so that's why we would not recommend taking these for that purpose. Now, you know, we know both from observational data and from other studies that there were certain conditions that one could hypothesize might be hormone sensitive, like things like osteoporosis, right? I mean, if you just look at the natural history of osteoporosis, it is a condition of postmenopausal persons for the most part, right? Um, not that men can't get it, but they get it at a much older age and lower rate, right? So um, there were conditions that the Women's Health Initiative was right-sized for, to have adequate power for, and length of time for, to study. And, and so among, you know, if you say, how did you pick what to, what to, uh, you know, include, a lot of it is what is in the evidence base beyond the Women's Health Initiative too. But I think that study dominates um, for a lot of looking at chronic conditions. So, you know, what is there that we know about benefit? We know that there is moderate benefit for reducing fractures. And, we also know that for the combination of estrogen and progestin, that there is small benefit for reducing the risk of diabetes and colon cancer. But there are a lot of safer choices if you want to reduce those risks. So you really don't have to turn to hormones for the small benefits there. And then in terms of harms, we know that there are moderate harms. So, so you know, when you think about the task force and how do we get to a grade? What we do is we look at the magnitude of harm or benefit, and then we look at the certainty of that estimation. And it's a combination of both the magnitude and the certainty that gets us to a grade. So, so we know that the harms are moderate for increasing invasive breast cancer, for people who take both progestins and estrogen, and for stroke for venous thromboembolism, for dementia, for gallbladder disease, and for urinary incontinence. So, you know, we're not kind of using an I recommendation here, right? So what is an I? An I means that the task force has insufficient evidence to recommend for or against using a therapy. In this situation, we don't have insufficient evidence. We have clear evidence um, about certain harms or increased probability of chronic conditions. And we have clear evidence about some benefits too. But when you net that out, basically we decided that the potential harms really canceled out um, the small benefits. And again, you know, when you think about those domains where the benefits are, we have better approaches. 
you know, and so, but, you know, there, there are a lot of things that people can do to preserve their bones as they're getting, um, you know, older. And then for people who have osteoporosis, we have good medicines to prevent fractures. So, and they don't carry the burden of causing all these other problems. That's, that's really helpful. And I feel kind of dumb because that's the piece I was missing. I'm like, well, if there's kind of benefit, then how are they making this determination? But you're right there. We have other tools that don't carry the same risks. And why why not, why not just use those, which should be obvious to me, but was not. But it, it makes sense that was part of the calculus. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That's helpful. And certainly part of it is, to your point, what um, what other prevention tools or treatments are available. And so not necessarily that the outcome itself you're weighing, I'm sure that comes into consideration, uh, like how severe is the potential harm, but also is there anything else you can do to prevent it? I think to that point, you know, there was some discussion in the um, review of evidence and then also in the recommendation about any difference in the benefit or harms based on the age at which hormone therapy was started for postmenopausal persons. And it seemed like at this time there wasn't enough evidence, but could you speak to why that was included or what the thought is behind that? There have been, you know, some small studies and there certainly have been a lot of opinions written that, you know, maybe hormones are very safe and good for you if you start them right when menopause happens and you only take them for five years or you only take them for seven years. But we really don't have those comparative effectiveness studies with the kind of long-term follow-up that one would need to tell if you're increasing or decreasing major chronic conditions. So, you know, Whenever we see a big evidence gap like that, in the recommendation, we make a call for future research. And certainly this, this question about starting times, stopping times, duration, um, is there just isn't much evidence to support a strategy at this point. That's helpful. And I, and I guess another question we sort of like to ask whenever an update of a recommendation comes out is what prompted it? It sounds like sometimes just enough time elapses that it's time to do it. And other times sort of new evidence declares itself that, that prompts the review. What, what was the rationale behind addressing this particular topic at this particular time? You know, I think important topics like hormone replacement um, need to be revisited. And in general, the task force likes to revisit things on about a five-year schedule, though oftentimes if there is a new big clinical trial um, or if there's an older clinical trial that identified more harms longer term or more benefits longer term, that would make us want to revisit it you know, sooner, right? And so when we think about this recommendation, we had longer term follow-up from the Women's Health Initiative but I would say that, you know, our recommendation is very consistent with what we said in 2017's final recommendation. And, you know, again, you know, after reviewing the marginal increased evidence, we found that the potential harms of using hormones for primary prevention of chronic conditions in people who've gone through menopause canceled out the benefits. And so, you know, it's, it's a similar story or 
to what we said in 2017, but there was longer term follow up. Um, and there were, you know, a few more studies to look at. That's great. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about it, doing the series with with you nice folks from the USPSTF, I, I think this came up in the, the vitamin episode with Dr. Barry, if I'm not mistaken, where rather than taking these, you know, quote unquote, negative recommendations or these D recommendations and just yeah. as a mandate to not do stuff, actually use them as an opportunity to discuss the things that we can do to actually improve and, uh, improve and promote health. So rather than sort of leaning into the negativity, actually using it as a way to, as a springboard to have a conversation about other um, more effective or more efficient health approaches. So I just, I think that's, that's such a helpful way to frame the discussion as opposed to just saying, nope, we don't do that. And just kind of closing the door. So that that's yeah. terrific. We've covered a ton of ground um, in a short amount of time, uh, technical difficulties notwithstanding, but once we got going, just <laughs> firing on a cylinder. So I, this is extraordinarily helpful. Um, I think it's, it's a nice framework for a conversation that, that comes up um, with my patients and it'll sort of help me be a little bit better armed to have that conversation. So I just want to thank you for your time and expertise and, and give you a chance to give any takeaway points or anything else that you'd like to emphasize before we let you go for the night. Well, first of all, you know, just thanks for this really wonderful opportunity. Um, and I guess, you know, my only uh, take home point would really be whenever we think about the evidence and we think about the gaps, you know, there, there are important things to always keep in mind. So, you know, one big evidence gap with the Women's Health Initiative is that it was a rather homogeneous group of people. And a lot of the people who have the highest risk for the conditions that we would love to prevent were not really included in very big numbers in that trial. So you always want to take you know, any evidence base with a grain of salt and you want to pay attention to, you know, where we need new evidence. And, you know, I would say we we still need to learn a lot about the most effective ways to do primary prevention for all people at greatest risk. So, Elena, that was extraordinarily helpful. It's it's I feel like we, we were talking a little bit pre-recording. This is just not something that I've considered very much. I, I guess I'm wondering, I'm glad that this recommendation came out because it kind of called attention to a topic I've not really thought as much about as I probably should have. I'm, I'm wondering how, what has been your experience with this? You know, have you had conversations with patients about this? Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, to your point, it's probably not something I, you know, historically I was curious how this like it came from somewhere, uh, you know, the thought to prevent <laughs> chronic <laughs> and maybe I should know that, uh, but it was a really good chance to see, you know, okay, so early on there was thought that it would help prevent cardiovascular disease and some evidence there. And I do think, you know, I've definitely had patients ask about hormone therapy as a replacement to prevent you know, health decline as they age and not specific, you know, I think fractures are something that's probably in the public knowledge because of osteoporosis. Uh, but then I think even beyond that is it's something I was, I had before and now why, why wouldn't it be helpful to replace that? And so I think, you know, really pivoting the discussion to your point into how we can use this. Okay. We haven't found it helpful for these reasons. And even though there was a small benefit for fractures and for um, diabetes in some patients, it was, you know, we have better ways to prevent that and to improve that risk. And so I think that that was a really helpful way to frame the conversation to me. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think also the distinction between treating symptoms of perimenopause for which there there is evidence and using these medications to prevent sort of chronic health issues. I think the discussion, at least in my head, got a little bit muddied and it was just sort of like no hormone therapy for anyone. Like, I feel like that's just, you know, it, it just kind of gets mushed together. And it, it, there are times when it's appropriate, but this is one of the instances where it is less so and we have other tools for prevention of disease, but it, it certainly can be used for the management of of symptoms and sort of other conditions. And it's, it's important to kind of tease those things out and think about what you're actually using it for, um, which I, I think it was also helpful to kind of clarify and have that conversation with Dr. Mangioni as well. Before I let you go, I, it's, I, I know we're, we're trying to streamline these things a little bit, but I, I feel like of all the people that we work with, I think your picks of the week are the ones I almost get the most excited about. Do you have anything for me this week? Oh, yeah. So I read a book recently called Red Plenty. Have you heard of it? No, I have not. I'm trying to see Francis Spufford. And I'm probably, I might have said that incorrectly, but it's a very interesting Soviet Union fairy tale is what they call it, but not fairy tale in the sense that we would consider. It just kind of goes through multiple short stories of individuals living in the Soviet Union around the 1940s to 60s and kind of this idea of being plentiful. And um, it, it's an interesting concept in a, a very well-written novel. So. Is it like historical fiction? Yes. Because yes. that is very much my jam. All right. Historical fiction meets Soviet Union fairy tale. <laughs> but <laughs> not in the way that... Niche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, oh, one more of those. But all right. I suppose I'm going to try. Very good on audio, too. So I, I um, recommend. I will spare the audience a pick of the week for me. No, I won't. Real quick. Smile is great, by the way. If you like horror movies. I'm yeah. varying out all the love this year. But Smile, I liked very, very much. Um very gross and, and scary so uh, if that's up your alley maybe enjoy that <laughs> but having having said all that um, let's let's go to the outro so I will now say this has been another episode of the Curbsiders bring you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy <laughs> about the right level of enthusiasm for that get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and while you're there sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox plus twice each month you'll get our Curbsiders Digest which recaps the latest practice changing articles guidelines and news in internal medicine we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I think that's been updated to askthecurbsiders at gmail.com, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I think um, you're correct. Okay, great. Um, which is, is Wado's personal email address. So any any specific questions you have or fashion advice, you can just email him there. Um, a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Elena Gibson, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste, who did especially heroic work this time around. Elizabeth Croto runs our social media. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Elena Gibson here. Thank you and good night.